0: Welcome to Prose and Context, a podcast about life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Hi again, everyone. This is Karen Elliott, and we're going to look at another novel, an American novel by Kate Chopin called The Awakening, and I have taught this many times over the years. And my podcast is entitled Dangerously Immersed in Ourselves. Well, I remember the first time I read this book. It was in college when I was earning my Bachelor of Arts at a liberal, secular university, and I can recall my professor's interpretation of the ending, and it it just did not sit well with me. He, like many of my professors, and myself for that matter, whether male or female, were and are self-proclaimed feminists. However, the interpretation of Edna's apparent suicide—sorry, spoiler alert— at the novel's end, is often read completely out of context in what I consider a very frightening postmodern analysis of literature these days, where basically your feelings about the text determine its meaning. This approach, however, raises serious questions, and any right-thinking, so-called intellectual, should raise his or her eyebrows when anyone looks at any text in this manner. Interestingly enough, however, this is exactly what Kate Chopin's main character does with her own life. Although Chopin wrote this at the turn of the 20th century, her main character is incredibly postmodern and more accurately, Edna is the postmodern middle to upper class American. Whether Christian or secular, Edna represents the typical American who already has it all but wants and feels as though they deserve even more. Despite her education and wealth, which she has always had, she feels trapped but not by the very oppressive anti-woman Louisiana society in which she lives, and it is definitely that. She is trapped by her own inability to bow down to any idea, anything larger than herself. This is evident as the reader travels through Edna's consciousness, that she has an acute sense of God. In fact, she admits that the Holy Spirit has vouchsafed wisdom within her youthful mind and soul but she is seduced by her own desires to do whatever she wants, no matter who it hurts. Chopin's craft and technique is nothing short of inspiring. On the surface, she appears to be a transcendentalist as Edna goes to the water and within nature to find herself, to find the answers of life, but she does no transcending of any kind. In fact, Chopin turns on her reader in not-so-subtle ways. Although at first, nature seems to speak to Edna's soul, the touch of the sea is sensuous and folding the body in its soft, close embrace. And yet, when Edna enters the ocean with the intent to transcend, Chopin reminds the reader that the sea is not Edna's native element. In fact, she writes, Edna had attempted all summer to learn to swim. She had received instructions from both the men and women, in some instances from the children, A certain ungovernable dread hung about her when in the water, unless there was a hand nearby that might reach out and reassure her. Chopin furthers the futility of Edna's efforts with her strong descriptions of the ocean, and she intentionally recycles phrases. She reuses them, particularly at the novel's end, so that her reader will be reminded of what's really happening to her character. Like the natural elements, Chopin seduces her reader and invites them to look at nature's veneer. She describes the sea as swelling lazily in broad billows. But then, as the waves ascend onto the beach, the little foamy crests coiled back like slow, white serpents. Biblically, serpent imagery only means one thing, and it's not enlightenment. As a result of nature's deception and therefore Edna's self-deception, Edna gains ill-gotten confidence, and, as Chopin writes, Edna swam out alone, and as she swam, she seemed to be reaching out for the unlimited in which to lose herself. Once, she turned and looked toward the shore, toward the people she had left there. She had not gone any great distance, that is, what would have been a great distance to some, but to Edna's unaccustomed vision, the stretch of water behind her assumed the aspect of a barrier— which her unaided strength would never be able to overcome. Edna is not allowed to journey through life alone, and she senses it here, but does not heed her conscience. Also, the last part of that particular passage, which I just read, predicts what happens in the end. Edna dies trying to find the answers within nature, and remember, this novel was written at the height of Darwin's naturalistic theories, as they were beginning to be taken very seriously in culture, and moreover, this means that if we're merely natural beings, then what Edna is doing is not merely trying to find God or reason within nature as Emerson or Thoreau might have done. Edna is going into the next humanistic and Darwinian level. She's attempting to tune her being into her natural state perhaps her own godliness, and she is her own savior, or at least she thinks so. Chopin, however, mocks this attempt, but also disguises it within the Creole Louisiana culture, which is not in tune with women at all. It's no secret that in Wyoming, which wasn't even a state yet, was allowing women to vote, whereas Louisiana at the same time equated women with the mentally ill in regards to contracts or business dealings, not to mention that women literally were property of their husbands upon marriage, like his favorite cigar or the chair where he smoked it. Of course, these issues cannot be overlooked, But it's certainly not the first time that there have been oppressive laws, and quite frankly, this is where only a few of my students are willing to challenge any pity that we might have for poor Edna when we begin the novel. Some students see her as the so-called oppressed rich white woman who lives the aristocratic high life in New Orleans, eats bonbons regularly, and gets to go to very nice, not house but an island for the summer— True, her husband is unfeeling and little too old for her, but in a characteristically Darwinian naturalistic manner, Edna allows her instinct, or my students might say privilege, and not her reason, to dictate some of her choices. Chopin claims that Edna fancied there was a sympathy of thought and taste between she and her husband, in which fancy she was mistaken. Add to this the violent opposition of her father and her sister to the marriage of a Catholic, and we, notice how Chopin assumes the reader is reading carefully and following along, we seek no further for the motives which led her to accept Monsieur Pontier for her husband. Here, in the text, it is evident that Edna allowed her human drive and instinct to dictate her actions. And note the diction and syntax. It's really hard to hate Leonce and pity Edna. After all, it was her choice. It was her rebellion and it is clear that she had a chance to get out of the engagement. This was no arranged marriage, and Edna, being an educated young woman, knew after she took her vows in the state of Louisiana that as a devoted wife of a man who worshipped her, she felt she would take her place with a certain dignity in the world of reality, closing the portals forever behind her upon the realm of romance and dreams. But... As a stereotypical, very privileged, self-indulgent American, according to some of my students, Edna turns to self-pity and worse, self-idolatry. She made a choice, and now she doesn't want to accept any responsibility for that decision. Edna subconsciously starts to blame shift and begins down the entitlement path. As Christians, this can only lead to one place, and it's not within the walls of a sanctuary or the fellowship hall, if that's where you hold your contemporary service. In fact, once Edna decides that she is going to live strictly for herself and herself only, she can't even exist within a godly setting. Chopin claims that when Edna and her almost affair lover, Robert, attend Sunday services, a feeling of oppression and drowsiness overcame Edna. Consequently, she indiscreetly walks out during Mass, and when Robert went to see if she was well, he also was, full of solicitude, which was great concern or anxiety, as they stood outside in the shadow of the church. What is interesting here is all the connotation and symbolism. Robert feels as Edna should, but Edna, note the spelling of her name, is trying to recreate her own Eden but it's perverted. She feels drowsy, not only because it's incredibly hot in Louisiana and they haven't even invented air conditioning. She's wearing long sleeves under a corset, or excuse me, over a corset in the summer, so forget that. But because she's not open to the Holy Ghost, who she claimed earlier might have given her some kind of wisdom or reason. Now, she is on her own, but ironically, her almost lover, Robert, is not. He senses the path they might be headed toward, and it's not in the light. Yes, he is definitely attracted to her, as she is to him. However, Robert knows that he must be responsible. He must live within the society in which he was born, whether he likes it or not. He also knows that Edna is already taken. She is married, and he even reminds Edna of that. He resists his desire to be with her two times. The first is right after the aforementioned scene outside of the church, Robert leaves to go on an extended business trip to Mexico without informing Edna, and near the novel's end, after he returns and he and Edna proclaim their desires and passions for each other, Chopin recycles previous phrases and notes that her seductive voice, like the sea, together with his great love for her, had enthralled his senses, had deprived him of impulse but the longing to hold her and keep her. This final comment is often willingly overlooked by my students, especially the females. It's always the boys who break the romantic bubble and reinforce Robert's integrity. Unlike Edna, Robert resists the seductive tendency to fulfill one's sinful desires and passions. He, unlike Edna, knows that there are rules, and no matter how you feel, you aren't allowed to break some of them. This is why Robert's sudden disappearance and final note upon her return to the room, is so crucial in this scene. You get the sense that he really does love her, which is why his note reads, Goodbye, because I love you. Robert knows that love is not desire, passion, or physical attraction. It's sacrifice. It's accountability. And by keeping himself pure, he attempts to keep Edna pure, the woman he loves, as well. Sadly, however, Edna does not want to be kept pure, nor does she want advice, and she certainly gets plenty of it from the other minor characters who love her, care about her welfare, and really do want her to be happy. Adèle Ratignolle at first appears as Edna's nemesis, only because Adèle's really pretty, has a great figure even after having tons of children, and Adèle is actually a wonderful mother and a loving friend who warns Robert to stay away from Edna so Edna won't make the unfortunate blunder of taking him seriously. And Edna's, or excuse me, Adele's final words to Edna are, think of your children, which Edna admits that those words stuck to her with a determination that had driven into her soul like a death wound. Even Dr. Mandalay, who at their final parting, holding her hand, he notices Edna that she seems to be, in trouble. And he says, if you feel moved to give me confidence, perhaps I might help you. In fact, it's not Robert who is the last man Edna thinks of before her death. It's Dr. Mandalay and his kindness and uncanny perception that she herself does not recognize until it is too late. But worst of all, and ironically, it's the one woman who Edna admires and attempts to emulate who predicts Edna's downfall the unmarried Mademoiselle Race, who upon their final meeting embraces Edna and who recalls that Mademoiselle Race put her arms around me and felt my shoulder blades to see if my wings were strong because she claimed that the bird that would soar above tradition and prejudice must have strong wings. And it is a sad spectacle to see the weaklings bruised, exhausted, fluttering back to earth. Which, tragically, that's exactly what happens to Edna. Even with a careless read, Chopin continuously reminds the reader that Edna will fail. For example, Edna's sleep is usually restless, and when she awakes, Chopin often uses phrases like grotesque pandemonium, struggling blindly toward inevitable annihilation, when describing Edna's dreams. Even when she has moments of apparent self-triumph, Chopin will quickly begin the next sentence with, but there came over Edna a sense of the unattainable. Chopin refuses to let her readers take sentences out of context so they cannot, like postmodernist Edna, determine the meaning of her life and death, and even the novel's end. Because Edna had resolved never again to belong to another than herself, she proclaims, Edna faces a frightening theological issue, one which the reader is prepared for the moment Edna enters the water for the first time and believes that she can swim. She can do life on her own and in her own way. Chopin prepares the reader with tons of symbolism. In fact, if students have difficulty understanding symbolic proliferation, then this novel illustrates it well. Chopin uses natural imagery in a biblical manner to further the plot's progression and the inevitable ending. There's a reason why water imagery is all over the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Life is about judgment and not necessarily the inaccurate, trendy way of looking at God's just judgment, as if he loves to point his mighty finger and damn everyone who doesn't bow down to him. Although, some might argue he certainly has that right. No, The accurate manner is one in which St. Paul describes in Romans as he predicts the immorality of the ages and how that will ensue, and that we will heap judgment upon ourselves. This is exactly what Edna does, and what my very perceptive thinkers, like Mademoiselle Reis and my students, predict. There are two ways to interpret Edna's suicide at the end, but only the third way, in my opinion, is accurate and biblical. The first is the way my professor wanted to interpret it, and many do. Edna is a free spirit born in an unforgiving age who doesn't understand her and the liberty she deserves. Perhaps that would be adultery. So she refuses to be possessed by any man, even her beloved Robert, so she frees herself by committing suicide during her final stick-it-to-the-man swim. Secondly, Edna realizes that she can't have Robert. He has denied her, so she drowns herself, so he will feel terrible about the note that he left her, which in modern-day culture could be a cowardly email, text, or tweet. But Edna's self-drowning makes an even bigger statement, except she won't live to see his reaction, which she doesn't think about first. No, I'm I'm really not convinced that either one of these interpretations work, certainly not with a literary mindset which requires a close reading of the text and everything kept in authorial context from the very beginning of the book. Instead, I believe it's Chopin, not Edna, who makes the final sobering statement. Although it appears that Edna is clearly depressed and that, quote, despondency had come upon her there in the wakeful night and had never lifted. It was not Robert's note, the inconvenience or difficulty of raising children, her husband's oblivious nature, or her desires to live independently as if she never married that are driving her into the water. Chopin claims that, She, Edna, was not thinking of these things when she walked down to the beach. It's actually the water, the gulf which Chopin capitalizes and thus gives divinity, that calls Edna toward the inevitable. Again, as stated earlier, Chopin claims that the voice of the sea is seductive, never ceasing, whispering, clamoring, murmuring, inviting the soul to wander in abysses of solitude. Again, note the diction. Our human sinful nature, our will, we will use any method necessary to lure ourselves into self-indulgence and self-destruction and rationalize it. In the same passage, Edna notices that there was no living thing in sight, even though water is what sustains life on earth. And then she notices a bird with a broken wing, reeling, fluttering, circling disabled down, down to the water. It is evident here that death is coming, not freedom. And yet she doesn't turn back. She doesn't heed the signs, the prediction even made by the one woman she admired, Mademoiselle Reyes. Chopin then brings her readers right along, showing that when Edna removes her clothes and stands naked on the shore, she almost feels natural and born again, as if she has the ability to save or free herself. However, Chopin immediately states that the foamy wavelets curled up to her feet and coiled like serpents around her ankles. Even the water was chill. Well, because it's winter, which is also symbolic of death, not life. But Edna walked on. The touch of the sea is sensuous. Here, Edna is steeped in self-deception, and Chopin's biblical imagery makes this disturbingly apparent because it almost works on us, the reader, and apparently one or two of my former professors. And it's not that I'm being judgmental. I'm really not. I want to believe, we want to believe, even as Christians, that we can save ourselves, that prayer, even God and Christ's sacrifice, is merely supplemental. If this weren't true, then privileged North America and Western Europe wouldn't be as secularized as it has become and will continue to do and be perhaps almost solely to our economic status and therefore our apparent technological and sadly acquitted with intellectual enlightenment. No, I'm not so sure. Edna's demise is her own choice. And it's arguable that she enters the water for another awakening into soul search, as many postmoderns do when we end up in the self-help section of the local bookstore. As a result, Edna similarly deceives herself and thinks she's something that she's not exactly the weakling, so-called pretentious artist that Mademoiselle Reiss predicted earlier. Chopin's last few paragraphs note Edna's lack of strength and that exhaustion was pressing upon and overpowering her. She even thinks of turning back as she reflects on Mademoiselle Reiss's comments She reflects on Robert, her husband, her children, and taking Dr. Mandalay's advice for counseling. But Chopin wrote, it was too late. The shore was far behind her and her strength was gone. What makes this difficult for me is that I've known too many Ednas in my life, and I've watched them get in over their heads by trying to swim life alone. Determine the outcomes with this don't-tell-me-how-to-do-it gumption that most Americans admire, but know where it leads. And the worst part is that Edna's final thought or emotion is not freedom or liberation or even ha-ha, I was right, you fools. It's one of terror, which Chopin writes, flamed up for an instant and then was gone as Edna's sinking in a perverted type of baptism, the antithesis of what Christ exemplified. Instead of immersion with cleansing and arising from the judgmental waters of Noah, where a person takes Christ's hand as he pulls us from the darkness to the light with a warm washing off of our self indulgences, instead of our self orientedness, only leads to drowning. There's no one there to take our hand if we stay underwater, or worse, there is, but we've been living our own way for so long that we don't recognize it and we're sinking. Or perhaps in Edna's case, she's just too tired to grasp it. Without even mentioning that Christ is the only way to fulfillment, Chopin does something that is very effective for the modern reader. She demonstrates what self oriented secular life is like and what happens when postmodern philosophy is lived to its logical conclusion. Instead of saying, Don't touch that hot burner on the stove, Chopin puts our finger. Then our whole hand on it and makes it sizzle. Instead of saying, you should stick it out sometimes and trust in God, Chopin seems to invite us to live the lives we think are best for us instead. And sadly, most Westerners can identify with Edna all too well. Like her, we and our students have great privilege. And as much as I want to like certain celebrities who go to Africa a lot, their lives, as expressed in the tabloids, are evidence enough of their not-admitted but apparent dissatisfaction with bowing down to their own ideas, self-made philosophies that only reveal our weakness and reinforce that we're in over our heads in worldliness. Like Edna, we are too busy trying to recreate Eden and morph the God-given boundaries so we don't have to do what God wants us to do. Ironically, and although it shouldn't be, when we bow down to God and his rules, that's when we find freedom, liberty, the chief end of happiness, even here in our flawed and oftentimes oppressive societies and relationships. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's a very sobering thing to think about, but I think this is a great book and I have enjoyed teaching it over the years. So I look forward to next time when we look at another text and sort of investigate how literature can affect our spiritual walk with God. Thank you so much. And there is a transcript with bibliography attached. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Prose and Context, a podcast from Life-Giving Teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Please subscribe to our podcast and come back again next week.